Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and my guest today is Jerry Robinson, who is the founder and executive director of the True Riches Academy and the host of True Riches Radio, a podcast dedicated to challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe upon the kingdom of God. Hey, Jerry, thanks for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Doug. I really like your tagline. I don't think I've ever heard that one before. Thank you. Yeah, challenging believers to think. That's the tough part. <laughs> challenging the thinkers to believe perhaps is a bit easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny. My wife and I and some friends of ours, we talk about personality profiles and things, and they, we talk about people who are thinking repressed and doing repressed and all these kinds of other like ways of describing how people process information and how they handle it and what to do with it. And so I think LCI and what you're doing has a very similar challenge and we want Christians to embrace a more consistent Christian political ethic. And we believe that, especially in America, there are a lot of Christians that don't think seriously about what the Bible says about politics or what the Bible says about ethics. And one of those things, of course, is the issue of violence, the issue of guns, the issue of civil disobedience, all those kinds of topics, which I want to get in to chat with you about today. But if you don't mind, just give us a little bit of your background. What's your story? Yeah. You bet. Yeah. So again, name is Jerry Robinson. You mentioned the website is truerichesradio.com. I am a believer in Christ. I was born and raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. So I had a strange upbringing mm. all throughout my schooling years. For example, I was the odd man out when it came to the Pledge of Allegiance or singing the national anthem, birthdays and Christmas and all of these things were pretty much taboo. I went out and knocked on doors whenever I was just a teenager and I kind of lost my inhibitions when it comes to, you know, dealing with, with people, you know, just total strangers. And so in many ways, it was very good for me in that respect. It also, one thing people don't realize about Jehovah's Witnesses is that they really drill the Bible into you. And mm -hmm. there are many, you know, just like with any cult, there are some good aspects. I mean, you can always find something good about the Mormons. You can find something good about the Jehovah's Witnesses. You can even find something good about the Muslims. You know, you can find good things, even though they may not be aiming at the right bullseye of truth. They still have some things that we can all learn from and maybe find a common ground with. And as a Jehovah's Witness, of course, I was introduced to the practice of nonviolence early on. Long story short, as I became a teenager and I began to drift away from Jehovah's Witnesses because of puberty and many other things, and plus I had too many questions. Jehovah's Witnesses aren't crazy about it. They love to ask you questions, but they don't really want you asking them questions. And so <laughs> as, I began to, as I began to ask them and drill down on some questions that I had, I just quickly found out those weren't welcome. I soon found myself spiritually homeless, kind of a backslidden cult member, one of the worst places to be. And I didn't know what to do. And I I remember just praying, saying, Lord, I don't know who you are. I don't know if you're Jehovah or Buddha or mm. Jesus. I don't know. And the next thing I know, a friend of mine invited me to church and I was confronted with the gospel for the very first time. And I knew that God was using this preacher who was sharing the gospel. And so I realized then that Christ was the true manifestation of God. And that was the moment where I began a journey. It's been a long sanctification trail. Mm. By no means was it 
immediately rainbows and everything. It was tough. You know, it was a very challenging thing is I had to unlearn a lot of bad things from Jehovah's Witnesses. But anyway, so over time, I, I continued to be an evangelist and I write books and write articles and of course have a podcast and radio and do all of those things. And I have a great passion for sharing the truth with anyone who will listen. And so that's what we do. And again, if people want to hear more about what we do, truerichesradio.com is where they can find us. So I have a question about the gospel that was presented to you. When I was in college, we had a other religions slash other cults, whatever sort of class. And we had to do like a study and a friend of mine and I chose Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I have a fond memory of us visiting a guy named Jamie who I worked with at Circuit City back in the day. And he was Jehovah's Witness. And so he was very happy, of course, for us to visit his house and talk and ask questions and inquire and stuff. And I don't remember all of the details. I remember a handful of things that I'm like, oh, they believe this like we do. (laughs) And it was sort of that little bit of overlap. But I want to ask you, because I don't know, and because I just want to hear from you, what was it about the gospel message that was presented to you at that time that made you go away from being a Jehovah's Witness? Because they believe in Jesus. They believe that there is salvation in Christ. I mean, I don't actually know some of the nuanced differences, but what was it for you that you converted? Well, as much as I do care deeply for Jehovah's Witnesses, and I really do, I got to admit, Jehovah's Witnesses are some of the kindest, sweetest people. Mm-hmm. They have a very a mild spirit, and I really do appreciate them. And I, I don't want to talk negatively about them on this broadcast, but what I want to do say is that they do tend to take a lot of things in the Bible and just kind of make stuff up. And they also just tend to not see certain things and gloss over certain things without Mm -hmm. getting into all the weeds there about what all that is. Ultimately, it's Jesus. Ultimately, what happens is, is that they subjugate Jesus below Jehovah God and they make Jesus merely a creature, an angel. They turn him into a creation. Mm, Okay. And what this does, of course, is it's clearly demeaning to what the true gospel is telling us, that God looks like Jesus. And I think that it was the moment that I realized that God looked like Jesus and that he did not look any other way. There was nothing else that he looked like. It was only Jesus that it helped me to understand. And it also gave me a love for God that I had not had until that time. Jesus, no matter what the devil has tried to do over the years, he has not been able to destroy the fact that Jesus had nonviolent love for friends and enemies. And so Satan would love to vilify Jesus. He would love to destroy Jesus' reputation. But even people who are unbelievers, they know that Jesus was nonviolent. They know that he was loving. They know that he was caring. They may have a problem with Christians, but they all seem to realize that Jesus, you know, except for those who are very insincere, they realize that he was full of love and compassion. And it was when I saw that compassion and love that my heart was touched. How did your views on how to understand the scriptures change? I mean, clearly you would have, I mean, assume you'd go to a different translation at the very least, but in terms of like maybe basic hermeneutics, how has that changed? And and maybe you can even spend time talking about how did it change from that conversion point up to like, where are you now on how do you see the scriptures as God's revelation and how it instructs Christians to live today and how to think? Well, the way that I saw it in the past was exactly the way the Watchtower Society told me to see it. And in fact, what was strange is that even when you go to the Kingdom Hall, which is what they call their churches, which normally don't have windows, which is just kind of an interesting side note, none of them do, is the fact that 
when you're in there, they're not really reading the Bible. You're reading the Watchtower magazine and you're listening to the governing body, kind of like the modern apostles, if you will. And so you're listening to their interpretation of the scripture and you're never really reading the scripture itself. And when you do, you're reading their version of it, which is called the New World Translation. And unfortunately, it's been butchered and there's a lot of poor renderings of the Greek and the Hebrew in it. And so really, it took me quite a long time, Doug, to unwind. I didn't realize some of the things that were wrong until being in the church. However, I will say this. I went from Jehovah's Witnesses who are apolitical, who are nonviolent. And then I went to the evangelical church and it was like night and day, a nonviolent, apolitical scenario and community into a very political and violent community Mm. in terms of the evangelical church. And what I mean by violent is that they have no problem with bearing arms and they have no problem with using those arms against their enemies and they have no problem with fighting about politics. And so that was one of the strange things that as I came out, I realized that I just couldn't eat everything whole that I was getting in the evangelical church either. So this was a very mind-boggling thing for me was that there was really no immediate safe place to go until you fully had a relationship with God because you know this. I mean, there are 10,000 plus different Christian denominations and they all argue. So you have to really be led by the Spirit. And I think that's what's changed over the years for me is that I used to read the scriptures strictly by the letter. And I would read whatever the letter said and that's what it was. Mm, Okay. But of course, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul begins to reveal that the letter killeth and that the Spirit gives life and that we are not ministers of the letter but we're ministers of the spirit of a new covenant. And so this explains why Jesus seems to handle some of the Old Testament verses with a strange kind of transcendence. And in essence, what he's doing is is he's interpreting these passages with the spirit, not just by the letter. Now, the Pharisees wanted him to do it right by the letter. It says, stone the adulteress, stone her. It says, don't touch the leper, don't touch him. It says, you can take oaths, so go ahead and take an oath. But Jesus is transcending the letter and he is showing the spirit. And I think that's what has happened to me over time is that I've learned that the scriptures are very powerful. They're a double-edged sword, of course. But at the same time, we have to be careful that we don't read the scriptures without the spirit. Because if we do, we run the risk of misreading them and misapplying them. And that, of course, would be devastating. So I think over time, I've learned that we are ministers of the new covenant. We're ministers of the spirit. And that affects how you read the letter. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you'll be reading the letter of the scripture and you'll have to push back. Just like Jacob wrestles with the angel, there'll be moments where you'll push back at the scripture. And what I've learned over time, Doug, because I've had a lot of questions in my life growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, and I've learned that there's no question that you can ask that's too hard for God. So if you run across something in the scriptures that boggles your mind, Yes, you can say, well, it's accepted by faith and there's something wrong with this. But at the same time, there's also nothing wrong with asking the Lord, what does this mean? Mm. And the spirit that's in us can give us the revelation to this. And then, of course, the scriptures. And then, of course, I would say other things that have really kind of evolved in my life also, in addition to a view of the scripture, is a view of Jesus, not seeing him as a man, not seeing him as a good man, but actually seeing him as the full, true image of God, like the exact representation of who God is. 
and that God doesn't have a Jekyll and Hyde kind of personality. He's not showing us Jesus just because that's what he wants us to see today. He's showing us Jesus because that's what he looks like. And that's what he looked like a thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago. That's how he's going to look a million years from now. He always looks like Jesus. And I think when I came to realize that, it transformed my own life and helped me to want to be like Jesus and to want to follow him and realize that when we're like Jesus, we're like God. Well, obviously, I mean, you actually quoted Hebrews 1 there without citing it. And I think that's important to point out because you're not simply going on your own way of describing who Jesus is as the exact representation of God. Do you think that, I kind of already know the answer is yes, but like, do you think that the way in which the evangelical church in general, and then maybe Protestantism in the West has had a sort of multiple views of God's character, and that's why they accept certain things that are not Christ-like? Yes, absolutely, positively. I can expand on that, but I will just say yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, go for it, because I think that'll lead us into some of the problematic views that a lot of Christians have. And maybe we'll get into the conversation a little bit more, and I can maybe defend, (laughs) play devil's advocate or however we want to do it, but I want to hear you elaborate a little bit on that. Like, how do Christians' view of God influence how they view their ability to treat others? It means everything. Our view of God, in my opinion, is going to determine absolutely everything about us. It's going to affect the way we view others. It's going to affect the way we view ourselves. And also, when we think about Christianity, when we think about the Christian pastor down the road at any of these churches, we would ask them, can we go to heaven if we're a Muslim? And they will usually tell us, no. We say, well, can we go to heaven if we're a Buddhist? And they will tell us no. And you say, well, why? Why can't we go to heaven if we are a Buddhist? Why can't we go to heaven if we're a Muslim? And they'll tell you that those faiths lack Jesus. They lack Jesus. And therefore, what's the difference between Christianity and Buddhism? It's that the adherents of Christianity see God as Jesus. They believe that God looks like Jesus. And therefore, because of that, God has mercy. And so therefore, the Buddhist who doesn't look at God and see Jesus is not seeing the right God. The same thing with the Muslim. You say, well, why can't the Muslim go to heaven, Christian preacher? And the preacher will tell you because he doesn't see Jesus as God. He knows that there's Jesus. He sees Jesus. He has an idea about Jesus, but he doesn't see God as Jesus. He doesn't see that. And so the same thing goes for the Jews. Now now we get in uncomfortable territory because now you ask the Christian pastor, what about a Jew? Can I go be a Jew and be saved? And they're going to tell you no. And you say, why? So, well, the Jews look at God and they don't see Jesus. They don't see Jesus. And in fact, Doug, the day that all of Israel will be saved will be the day that they see God looks like Jesus. And that's the day that Israel is saved is when they see that God looks like Jesus. They don't think that God looks like Jesus. And so therefore, to answer your question, I think we get in trouble as Christians when we view God the way the Jews do, or when we view God the way the Muslims do, or when we view God the way the Buddhists do. We don't see God looking like Jesus. And so if you go back to the Old Testament without the light of Christ, and if you go into the Old Testament without the Spirit, then you're going to see pictures of a God that oftentimes doesn't look like Jesus. And therefore, this is why the Christian preacher will tell you that a Jew who follows Moses alone cannot go to heaven because he doesn't know that God looks like Jesus. And so I would say that we get into trouble 
when we go back into the Old Testament, not taking the light of Christ, not taking the spirit that we have been empowered with, and going back into the Old Testament and assuming that everything that is said there in the letter is absolutely what God looks like. Because if that was the case, Doug, well, then why can't Jews be saved? Well, Eh. this is the whole point, is the fact that the reason why Christians say that Jews need to be saved is so that they can understand that God looks like Jesus. So until they do, the idea in Christianity is that they cannot be saved. And so I think that explains much of it. Okay. Well, that man, we could go into a whole (laughs) series of episodes about (laughs) how do we read the Old Testament in light of Christ and I would venture to say that we probably should stick to more specific issues in this particular conversation <laughs> we could like go too far afield. But that's a very important topic to discuss. And I will say that there are a handful of ways in which people actually look at those passages and talk about things, especially the ones that are kind of the ones that really unsettle us. And on the Christians for Liberty Network, we actually have a handful of episodes that go into that. I can add some of those in the show notes page. Jerry, I don't know if you've heard any of those and I'm not saying you endorse any of those. I'm just putting those out there for our listeners to kind of go into because I know that Jacob Winograd recently uh, discussed with Gregory Baus about the issue of God and violence in the Old Testament and stuff. But even if you disagree on that, I do know that in the New Covenant, we are to mimic and imitate Jesus. And you can handle the Old Testament in a number of ways, but that's still true, right? And so you have some particular teachings with respect to things like gun violence or gun culture, the American Revolution, civil disobedience. We don't have time to talk about every single one of them, but you talk about on several of your episodes, you have talked about something that you're calling gun culture. And that phrase, I'm a little unsettled with, although I kind of understand what you mean by it. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit because it sounds like it comes from like the far left as a far left critique. And I'm old and wise enough to realize that when people use words, they're not always using them the same way that I might have heard them in the past. So what do you mean by gun culture? What is it that you see as a problem with so-called gun culture, at least from the sort of Christian perspective? That's a great question. Well, as members of the kingdom of God, if we believe in Christ and we want to be a part of God's kingdom, we have to realize that the kingdom of God already has gun laws. It already has gun laws. God equips the man of faith with spiritual weapons, not carnal weapons. So when we think about Christ, we say, well, did Christ ever advocate the sword, let alone our modern machines of death, as an effective means of conflict resolution for his disciples? The answer is no. The answer is no, right? So, and then we also think to ourselves, well, you know, if God is life, he doesn't traffic in machines of death, nor does he tempt men to use carnal weapons. Instead, we're commanded to put on the full armor of God so that we can wield our spiritual weapons against the machinations of the devil. That's Ephesians 6. So the only carnal weapons available to Christ's disciples belong to their adversary. I mean, we have to remember that it's Satan, not God, who tempts men to physically war against the image of God in their brother and sister. It's Satan who calls good evil and evil good. It's not God. God is life. And as life, he stands on the side of life, which opposes the sword which opposes the firearm, which opposes the nuclear bomb, because these all bring death. They're all ultimately going to lead to death. And so when we think about the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus, we see that Jesus didn't use any carnal weapons, and he never called any of his disciples to use carnal weapons. In fact, when we think about how many people that Jesus killed, we would see that number is zero. 
When we look at the number of people that the disciples killed, we would see that number is zero. When we say, well, how many people did Jesus maim? Well, that number is zero. We say, how many people did the disciples maim? You say, well, there was one with Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord rebuked him. And the Lord rebukes him and tells him to put up yeah. the sword. And as Tertullian said, you know, which we can disagree about Tertullian's, you know, the early church father Tertullian, but, but he said that when Peter was disarmed, Jesus disarmed every Christian. And mm-hmm. so I think that the way we tend to look at guns kind of reveals to us that we have a misunderstanding. You see, the New Testament is clear that the kingdom of God already has gun laws. They look nothing like the Second Amendment. The kingdom of God is nonviolent. Its citizens don't rely upon carnal weapons. And this was rightly understood for the first three centuries of Christian history, right? But over time, by the fourth century, as Christians began to gain political legitimacy of power across the Roman Empire, they began to condone homicidal violence against enemies in spite of Christ's commands and example. And so we even read, say, in like Isaiah 53, 9, where it's Isaiah 53, of course, is the suffering servant passage there where it's talking about Jesus, how he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Right. But it also says in verse nine that he did no violence. I think the phrase is in him, there was no violence at all. I think was sort of the, yeah. is that not the way the phrasing? The new King James says he had done no violence, okay. uh, nor was yeah. seed in his mouth. But, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a Well, very, that's the verse I bring, by the way, that's the verse I bring up when people bring up the temple cleansing. You're right. It's like, well, okay, fine. Whatever you want to say about him being angry in the temple, he didn't do violence, at least to humans, even if to anything. I have a question for you. A lot of times people will say, well, of course, in the Gospels, you're absolutely right. Maybe people quibble over a scene here or there, but I think they would be willing to be convinced by what you just said. But they are, you probably know where I'm going with this. They look at the book of Revelation and they say, well, look, Jesus is going to come back with a sword this time. Well, and I think that's fairly simple to deal with. The book of Revelation, of course, everybody knows, is a symbolic book. But even when you look at the passages themselves, you'll discover that when Jesus comes back, say, in Revelation 19, the sword is in his mouth. It's not in his hand. And the sword, of course, in his mouth would be his word. Mm -hmm. And we know that when Jesus does war, he does it righteously. And Doug, I would suggest to you that you and I have never seen righteous war. We have no idea what that looks like. We have no idea what righteous judgment looks like. So when he judges and makes war, he does it righteously. He does it in a way that is righteous. We don't know what that is. And of course, our wrath never works the righteousness of God. So we don't have a way to connect with that. But when we look at, say, Revelation 19, the sword is proceeding from his mouth, not his hand. He slays his enemies with the sword from his mouth. Remember also that there is a wrath of the lamb in the book of Revelation, it's almost comical that you have the great men of the earth, you have the mighty men of the earth, the commanders, even those with the ability to push the button and drop nuclear bombs. They're all worried about the wrath of the lamb. And you got to let that soak in for a minute because you also have the wrath of a dragon. Dragon shoots fire from his mouth, stomps on you, crushes you into the ground, and he's mad. But then you also have the wrath of the lamb. And when John sees this lamb, he's expecting to see the lion of the tribe of Judah in mm. Revelation 5, and he turns and he sees a lamb that looks like he's slaughtered. This is the lion. It's the slaughtered lamb. And so even in Revelation, Jesus is still depicting this slaughtered lamb, showing that this is his identity. In fact, many people will often say, well, just wait until God finally comes back and he's going to smite mankind. Well, you think to yourself, we've already had this test. 
God did stand on the earth and he stood right in front of man. And who was the violent one? Was it God? Not at all. It turned out to be man. Man is the one who is violent. Man is the one who needs to repent. God doesn't need to repent. God, God hasn't done anything wrong and he's never going to do anything wrong, but we do things wrong. And when we kill, we do something wrong. That's against God. God says, don't kill. So when we kill, we're doing what God tells us not to do. So as far as guns and having guns and using them against our enemies, this is not allowed by the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us not to do this either. And so if we do it, we simply do it out of our own volition, or we do it out of some sort of perverted view of the Bible. Okay. So there's a handful of things I want to talk about there because on the one hand, I'm nodding along. Nobody can see us do this, of course, but I'm nodding along with you and saying, yep, that's right. I don't know about the whole gun law thing in the kingdom of God because obviously there were guns then, but there was the sword. And I think that's a pretty apt comparison. It's not perfect, but it's very similar as a metaphor for violence and doing personal violence. And then, of course, the sword is also used to connote military violence and aggression, right? I think that's fair to say. I wonder, though, with respect to whether or not we're permitted or told to do something in Scripture or specifically by the Lord, is it possible that there are things that we're permitted to do that Jesus didn't address? I know a lot of Christians have this sort of like, well, if it's proscribed in Scripture, then we can do it. But if it's not, then we can't. And then others are like, well, it's not prohibited, so we're okay as long as it's not explicitly prohibited, that kind of approach. Where do you fall on that sort of debate? The Lord didn't say a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of things that he just kind of leaves to us. And we have to use our own moral intuition, which is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and lean upon the Spirit. But we also can also look at the traditions. If there are righteous traditions in the church, we can look at those too. Now, one of the traditions in the church is a just war theory. And the just war theory, for example, is a perfect example of basically taking ideas from the past and Christianizing them or baptizing them. And if we want to take violence and we want to baptize it and call it Christian, I would say that we would not be able to do this. Let's think about Jesus for a minute. Jesus kept God's law perfectly. And no one debates this. I mean, unless maybe an atheist, but anyone who's a Christian, they would say, no, of course, God's law was kept perfectly through Jesus. And you say, well, did Jesus ever use violence then? And we just said, no, he didn't use violence. So during Jesus's whole life, he kept the law of God and never used violence. Now, it's important to note that there were even moments where the law of Moses prescribed violence and he didn't do violence. So therefore, he was keeping God's law by not doing the violence that was even proscribed in the letter of the Old Testament law, i.e. stone the adulteress, i.e. do not walk around with your mat on the Sabbath. Uh And there's many others. So if Jesus kept God's law perfectly, and if Jesus never used violence against any man, then how can I expect to keep God's law through violence? Just as you can't follow Jack the Ripper through nonviolence, you can't follow Jesus through violence. Christians are called to repent of their violence and to follow the way of Christ. If we learn anything from the cross, it's that man hated God, that they hate God with a great passion. God doesn't hate us. We hate God. That's the picture of the cross. So when Christ comes to his own, his own do not receive him. They malign him. They call him a glutton, a drunkard. They look for every opportunity to destroy him. And he's, he does nothing but good, does no violence to them. But their violence is bubbling underneath the surface. Jesus and the cross expose man's violence. They don't expose God's violence. 
They expose man's violence. And so, as I had said, you just can't follow Jack the Ripper through nonviolence, and you can't follow Jesus through violence. Now, there may be people who tell you that you can, but that doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it right. And they might even point back to the Old Testament and say, well, people back in the Old Testament were violent. But then if you ask them, well, they say, well, go be a Jew, go be a Jew. And you find out that you can't be saved if you're a Jew, they tell you. So (laughs) in other words, what I'm saying is, is that Christ becomes our model. And if we won't have Christ as our model, then we really aren't Christ followers. Christ has to be our model. And he doesn't kill. He doesn't destroy. He doesn't steal, but he reveals an evil one. The evil one is the one who kills. The evil one is the one who destroys. The evil one, in fact, in his model prayer that Jesus gives, he tells us to mention the evil one every single time we pray. Why is this? Because in the Old Testament, you won't see the devil. You'll see him maybe just a handful of times, right? How many people did Satan kill in the Old Testament? There's 10, 10 in the book of Job. Okay, Doug, 10. How many people did Satan talk to in the Old Testament? One, in Eve. Okay. And so therefore, but when we get to the New Testament, every New Testament writer writes about Satan. There's not a single New Testament writer that does not bring up the devil. And on top of that, you have the fact that Jesus is telling us that he is the ruler of this world. Three times he tells us this. Paul says that Satan is the God, the Theos of this world. Okay. This Moses doesn't know this. Okay. Samson doesn't know this. David doesn't know this. Jesus knows this. Paul knows this. Peter knows this. This is revelation. These were things hidden from the very foundation of the world that are revealed through the mouth of Jesus Christ to his disciples. It was a mystery hidden from the ages. And the mystery is God looks like Jesus. This is what was hidden throughout the whole Old Testament. They didn't know that God looked like Jesus. And so when Jesus comes, he reveals what God actually looks like and how we can be right with God by becoming children of God. How? By looking like the Son of God who demonstrates and only does what the Father tells him to do and what the Father does himself. So I think there's a distinction that's often made that allows this loophole where they say, well, Jesus would do that, but God wouldn't. But that simply betrays the fact that we don't think that God looks like Jesus. When we think that God looks like Jesus, then we realize that God isn't different from Jesus and that he doesn't use any other tactics that are different from Jesus. That's what Muslims believe. That's what Jews believe. That's not what Christians believe. Hi, everyone. This is Alex Bernardo. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as my podcast, the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, where I explore the relationship between biblical studies, theology, political philosophy, history, and economics. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing a variety of content you love, just like what you're hearing on this episode right now. Go ahead and finish this great episode. Then you can go and check out the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. What is your take on Romans 13, where Paul is writing about the governing authorities are instituted by God and that they don't bear the sword in vain? Well, we have to think about that sword. That sword is going to come down on Paul's head. Now, he tells us that that sword is, he says that the authorities do not bear the sword in vain, but they're actually ministers to you for good. Okay, well, again, remember now, Peter and Paul are both going to have this sword brought down upon their necks. The idea that God used Nero's sword to kill Peter is absurd. The idea that God used Nero's sword to kill Paul is absolutely absurd. 
And the idea that God himself kills Jesus is absolutely absurd. But this became the common way of viewing things with the Protestant Reformation, the penal substitutional atonement theory. We don't have to get into that, of course. But this is the idea that it's not man who is doing this, but it's God is the one who is doing this. And it turns out that that's not the case. And so with Jesus, the Bible is clear, say in Acts chapter three, where Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he says, you Mm -hmm. killed the Lord, you killed. And so it becomes man that kills Jesus. And it's man who kills Peter. It's man who kills Paul. It's man who kills Stephen. Now we could get in Romans 13, quite frankly, would probably take us the rest of the hour because I, there's a lot. Well, I think what I want to get at with that question though is. What do you make of God's sovereignty with the existence of states and the Bible and Paul in there specifically saying that they're not outside of God's sovereign rule over creation? And in other words, I'll just tell you what I think. Given what you're saying, all of the we need to follow Jesus, we need to be like Jesus because God is like Jesus. And for that matter, even if people don't embrace the way you're putting it, we are to be like Jesus. I mean, that's clear from the New Testament in and of itself. So we could just start full stop, right? But in God's sovereignty, there is, I want to say allowances, but there is a way in which God uses things such as the state bearing the sword that are not always in vain. In other words, the state can, in that particular view of Romans 13, that the state can actually bear the sword for the good of people because it's against evildoers, right? So it can, in theory, prevent harm from happening to individuals, or it can possibly be the sort of like keep the peace kind of situation there. And so I'm wondering, though, that even if we view God as sovereign over everything, including sinful humans who will make not fully Christ-like decisions, such as using a gun to defend others, I think it was in 2022, there was the mall shooting that was stopped by somebody who also had a gun, which presumably saved more people, even though it disabled, I don't know, did it kill the shooter, the original shooter who was there with intent to harm. I actually don't remember the details. You might remember them. It seems to me that God can still work in those ways. And I would say that even if you were to say, oh, okay, well, maybe that doesn't mean that we just start taking up arms. I get that. But what do you make of God working with people who are going to need to make certain choices that are somewhat last resort, not fully redeemed, not fully sanctified choices, and still sort of using that for good. I don't think that God uses evil means to achieve his purposes. So I don't think that God, which is light, who is light, uses dark means. I don't think that God, who is only good, uses evil means. I don't think that God, who is only truth, traffics in lies. I don't think that God, who is spirit, is prone to fleshly tendencies. So I believe that there are two kingdoms. I believe that there is a kingdom of God and there's a kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness has weapons that are carnal. The kingdom of God has weapons that are spiritual. And the reason why this is important is because darkness can never overcome darkness. So if you have evil and you use evil means to overcome that evil, well, you just perpetuate the evil. If you're in the middle of a dark forest and you're trying to get light and you add more dark to the darkness, you just have more darkness. So this is why Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. This is why Jesus turned the other cheek himself. This is why he tells the disciples to turn the other cheek. This is why he tells the disciples not to kill and not to steal and not to destroy and not to do all of these other things. But instead, he models a life that shows that we overcome evil with good. Why? Because evil can never be overcome with evil. In fact, when you try to overcome evil with evil, you end up with more evil. 
So God doesn't use evil to overcome good. He uses good to overcome evil. And that's why he wins. If he used evil to overcome evil, it wouldn't work. This is why Jesus doesn't come and use evil to overcome evil. In fact, he's the one who comes and crawls up on his cross, lets them nail him into the cross, and then forgives them, shaming them. So he uses good to overcome evil, and that is actually how you destroy evil. Now, Satan doesn't want us to know that evil cannot overcome evil. He wants us to keep using evil means to try to overcome evil, because that way it perpetuates his kingdom. But we know that only good can overcome evil. Therefore, we can't use evil means to overcome evil because we'll only add to the evil. So therefore, good is the only solution to evil, just as light is the only solution to darkness, just as truth is the only solution for lies, just as love is the only solution for hate. So it's no different when it comes to guns. Guns are machines of death. They are designed to kill. They are designed to destroy. These are not given to us by God. We know this. The Bible in the New Testament, it shows that we have been given spiritual weapons. Far too many people pick up a carnal weapon, but don't pick up their spiritual weapons. And the only carnal weapons available to us, in my opinion, Doug, are those that belong to our adversary. And he does want to offer them to us. And he does want to give us a right to them. But we don't have to take them. And we don't have to accept that right. So... There's the famous statement, the only thing that'll stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. I don't think that that is of the spirit. I don't believe that that's the attitude that Christians ought to have. But it is, I would say, undeniably the case that when you are in a situation where there is a bad guy with a gun, with intent to shoot, with intent to harm instantly, I'm not saying, by the way, that there are no nonviolent means to eliminate, I would say eliminate, that's not the right word, to halt that scenario, right? I know Ron Sider and some others have pointed out that there have been many situations that have possibly escalated, but they didn't. It's done through nonviolent means. I just don't know. I'm pretty reluctant to say that the good guy with the gun in the moment as a last resort has to simply stop the violence or stop the bloodshed and shouldn't stand by without sort of helpless or possibly helpless simply because they won't use a tool that, sure, may not have been given by God, but in God's sovereignty, I would say, okay, fine, this isn't the answer, but right now, this is the tool that I have. And there are, are ways to use guns that don't kill. There are ways to use guns to simply harm somebody, of course, and put them in the hospital, perhaps, but not necessarily kill them, but prevent them from killing. And so I would 100% agree that it is not of the spirit to say, hey, we need to just keep arming ourselves in order to keep bad people at bay. I think you're right about the spiritual, we are given spiritual tools. So I don't know, what do you think of my reluctance of like, I mean, we live, <laughs> you probably heard this before, like we live in the real world. We don't always have the opportunity. We're not always well trained to de-escalate nonviolently, which I believe is an obligation of Christians to learn how to do. For those Christians out there that want to, I am fine with gun ownership, but I also don't believe that we should put our hope there and that we should arm ourselves with nonviolent de-escalation. So anyway, you can get your response to that and I'll let you, this isn't intended to be a debating conversation, but I do, of course, know where I stand on things and also where many of our listeners stand. So I, I think it's suitable for us to converse about this. Sure, no, of course. I mean, I think the question, and often this question is posed is what if, what if somebody was gonna do something terrible to your wife or child, you know, what would you do? And this is the typical question that's, is often addressed. And 
to me, unfortunately, this question often boils down to a what I call Rambo versus Dumbo. So the idea is, is either A, you're going to arm up and you're going to shoot everybody in the place, or you're going to sit on the couch and you're going to just watch it happen, right? So there was just like two paths. There's a path of sitting on the couch and just watching all the evil transpire, which nobody believes anybody would ever do. And then you have the other response of, well, I'm going to, you know, get my gun and shoot him in the face. So you have two different means. One of the things I like to push back at when it comes to these things is, yeah, well, maybe we would use a gun in that scenario. Maybe we would pick up a gun and shoot the intruder. But the question becomes, well, why use a gun? When you think about a gun, there's two benefits of the gun. Two benefits of the gun that I can think of initially are, A, you stop the person and you stop him very quickly. At a distance. At a distance. And B, you keep your hands clean. You know, your fingernails don't get dirty. You see, what if we put the gun away and we said we're going to drown him? Or why not bury him alive? Or why not go ahead and just torture him, right? And when you say, well, no, that, that sounds too bad. Well, how is it different from shooting a man in the face? How is it different from exploding his organs with a machine of death? Well, I would say the difference is he already is, I mean, he's not the one with simply a knife and we're coming at him with a knife or simply with intent to bury us alive. He has the create violence at a distance weapon in hand. That's the situation that we're dealing with. Whether we like it or not, we can't uninvent guns, right? We can't uninvent this technology that will exist for the benefit of the kingdom of darkness, right? Like, we can say that those shouldn't be and that we can't use them, but at the same time, we can't uninvent them. No, but we also know that there's no husband who would stand idly by with his hands in his pockets. Sure. If someone... Oh, absolutely. I don't think any pacifist would even stand yeah. by. They would do no. some physical movement. That's right. Yeah. If somebody's trying to rape or kill your wife, you're not going to stand there and watch it. If a father is standing by watching someone kill or molest their child, that is not, he's not going to stand there. And this is what the argument is that, well, if you aren't willing to use evil means, then you're not really a good father. Or if you're not willing to use evil means, well, then you're not really a good husband. And this is where we would disagree with that argument of the what if. No one would sit by casually. And even a bad shepherd wouldn't protect his sheep. Even shepherds have to protect their sheep from wolves. I mean, so the good yeah. shepherd uses his staff to protect his sheep from wolves and other predators. And I think that's usually the idea that kind of goes into why not buy a gun then so that you can protect your wife and your children. I believe this is a temptation for our generation. I think it's a temptation that Satan has offered. When you hear about God-given gun rights, I believe that they're God-given. I believe that they're given by the God of this world. I believe that God gives us the spiritual weapons. He gives us a right to the tree of life. Satan gives us a right to traffic in carnal weapons. And we have to choose our master. We can choose spiritual weapons or we can choose carnal weapons. But there's other things too. Again, with this what if question, many times things that are left out like, are you putting yourself in danger? Are you flaunting your wealth? Are you kind of asking for it? Are you? So in other words, what I'm saying is, is that we have to use wisdom and be guided by the Spirit. But I believe that the Spirit of God will guide us and lead us in all truth. And Psalms 91 tells us that we will be protected. And I do believe that we can walk in divine protection and not live in fear about someone else who is using evil means. And if they do use evil means against us and we are not able to overcome them with good means, well, the good news is, is that Jesus has the keys. He has the keys to death in Hades. And he tells us not to fear those who can kill the body. So we have a lot of scripture that tells us what we're supposed to do in these kinds of situations. And what they include are not sitting on the couch and watching, but I also think that they don't involve retaliating 
with the same evil means that were being perpetrated upon you initially. Yeah, I think where you and I differ is I still think it's an open possibility for a Christian to use a gun in a sort of reluctant last resort sense. And I think the idea of gun culture, which maybe isn't quite the way that you picture it, I don't believe that, well, for that matter, anybody, but Christians especially, should put their hope in weapons of this world or tools that are often used as weapons of this world, right? So the fact that I don't personally, but if I had a full gun cabinet, there's a very real temptation that that is an idol for my protection, right? Like I could treat that as the source of satisfaction and assuredness that if something bad were to happen, me and my family, we would be able to defend ourselves, right? That would be a temptation that would be unrelying on God. I can totally see that. At the same time, there's just a number of things in my mind that like, and again, I don't even think that this boils down to, well, you can't solve all my what ifs, Jerry, so therefore I'm allowed to have a gun. Like if someone is reaching for like, I just want to shoot people if they anger me and come at me, well, that's a huge problem, right? That's not the spirit of Christ. <laughs> and so we're definitely not living and walking in the spirit in that regard. But there are people out there that are vulnerable. You have children, you have anybody who's simply an innocent person who can be aggressed upon. I think there is in some capacity a way in which we are allowed to stop that. And I, I would agree. To put our hope in guns is one thing. To use guns as a last resort reluctance kind of thing would be another. Yeah, well, I would agree that we are to defend the defenseless. We are to defend the weak. I would just say we would use the means that Jesus would use. And if we can't picture Jesus using an AR-15 against his enemies, then we don't have the ability to do it either. I'm going to leave that discussion there. <laughs> we might get some emails, Jerry, about this conversation, which, which would be great. <laughs> And I would love to continue further on this, but we're pretty much out of time on this episode. Where can people find you online to hear more about your views on this? Because I know you've specifically talked about gun culture. You've talked about actual particular shootings that have happened in America in the past and even recently. In fact, you and I are recording this the week of the shooting in Nashville at a Christian school. And so this is actually a pretty relevant topic because it's in the news, which, I mean, we're in America. And so it's not unlikely that it's simply relevant and it will be relevant as we move forward. And I clearly appreciate and I think we align a lot more than maybe some people do with your views on that. But anyway, where can people find you so they can learn more about what you're teaching? Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. We are speaking during that week of another school shooting, and this is very devastating. And it's sad, Doug, that the way that we have this discussion in America is strictly based on politics when it should really be based on what we're talking about today. It should really be based upon a faith, not a Republican versus Democrat, sure. but really just simply what would Jesus have us do? And as we've said, Americans have a love affair with guns. I mean, there's undoubtedly and idolatry. I would say, as you pointed out, guns could be idols. Idolatry is a serious sin because it takes away from the glory of God. And we talk about those things. We talk about many things, just war, the American Revolution. We talk about our guns a God-given right. We talk about many other things, too. I talk about how to witness to Jehovah's Witnesses. People can find all of that on truerichesradio.com, truerichesradio.com. And there we have our academy, which you brought up. They can go to YouTube and they can see we have a big YouTube channel with lots of different videos. And we encourage people to reach out to us. Maybe someone has heard something today that has disturbed them, or maybe it's encouraged them, one of the two. And 
we welcome questions. We welcome comments, just as I know you do as well. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. This has been really helpful, I think, for people listening, but also just a great conversation in general. Well, great. Well, I appreciate you being on, Jerry. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.